Good morning, Love Chapel Hill. Great to see y'all again. I want to start out by saying thank you um, for your response this week uh, to the tragic news, um, tragic events in Afghanistan and Haiti as well. And for the way as a church family, you responded with prayer and fasting and joining together in that. Um, and I'm also really grateful for the way that many of you have asked how we can push that beyond. So what's our next response? Obviously, our first response is prayer. Uh, that's not a last resort. That's a first response, right? And we want to keep ourselves oriented with that. But many of you have asked, how do we continue to respond once we prayed? How do those prayers then move into action? And how is God enabling us to be a part of healing in this process. And so I want to let you know that uh, I don't have a full answer to that yet, um, but we are talking about that. And we have some people looking into a couple of the different organizations that are um, helping people, especially helping uh, some of the refugees who will be coming to our area uh, and helping them to get settled here. And so uh, we're going to keep talking with you about that and inviting uh, as a church family uh, to be a part of that uh, and to be a part of embodying what the kingdom of Jesus looks like here and now in response to every situation around us. So thank you for the way that you are leading with your hearts in that. Uh, today we're going to be in John chapter 7. So we're looking at verses uh, 37 through 44 in John chapter 7. So you can turn there if you've got like a physical Bible or uh, on your phone or uh, on the lovechapelhill.com slash Sunday. Uh, you can follow along there. Uh, and I'm just going to start by reading that passage for us today. So this is uh, in the life of Jesus, the gospel according to John chapter 7, starting with verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 43, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. That's going to be our starting point today. Jesus, help us as we dive into your word. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you're saying to us through what you said in this moment. This moment that happened in a specific time, in a specific place, and yet it has the power because it came from your mouth that has the power to cut all the way to us here and now. Speak to us. We want to hear what you said and what you mean. 
and what you mean for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the people were divided because of Jesus. That's an interesting place for us to begin and for us to land today, especially when we think about where we were last week. So last week we were in John chapter 1, and we were looking at the, this upstart movement of Jesus at its very beginning. And it had this really encouraging beginning with this invitation of come and see. And the skepticism that Nathaniel, the, one of the disciples, was sensing. And his friend Philip challenges him that the best response to skepticism is exploration. Right? Not just to dismiss, but to dig in. And to explore and to experience. So rather than trying to explain to him about Jesus or debate with him over Jesus, he just invited him to come and experience Jesus. Come and see. That's a really encouraging way for this to begin. And then we move into what Jesus says to Nathaniel, where it's not just this invitation to come and see, but an invitation to come and be seen. And Jesus says, I saw you. And Jesus is saying to us, I see you wherever you are, whatever it is you're walking through at this moment, whatever it is you're coming out of or headed into, I see you. So encouraging to hear that from Jesus. And yet now we fast forward just a little bit in the Jesus story and already we've got this controversy and this scandal and the people being divided over Jesus. But I want to remind you that where we started last week actually had the seeds of this already in it. Because where we ended last week was Nathaniel's declaration of belief and this proclamation of who he believed Jesus to be. And he gives these two titles to Jesus. He says, I believe that you're the Son of God and the King of Israel. That's scandalous. That is deeply scandalous for the religious establishment of the day. For Nathaniel to say that about Jesus and for Jesus to accept that from Samuel, uh, from Nathaniel, sorry. I'm thinking about my son Samuel apparently, all right? That is scandalous. So much controversy in that. The religious establishment would have seen that as blasphemy. But it's not just a religious problem, it's also a political problem because the political establishment wouldn't have seen it as blasphemy, but they would have seen it as treason. And we remember that at this day and time, Israel is not a sovereign nation at this point in their history. They're not the kingdom of Israel like we read about in their past history, but instead they are now, they have been conquered by the Roman Empire and they're under the oppressive reign an occupation of the Roman Empire. Caesar is king in the minds of the Roman Empire and there will be no rival to Caesar. And at this point, the mythology has built up around the Caesars to the point where they see them as heirs to the divine, as the sons of gods. And it's all built up around. So when he says this, it's not just religiously charged language. It's also politically charged language. And they're already putting themselves on the line from the beginning by saying, no, it's not Caesar who's the son of God. It's not Caesar who's the king. It's this man standing in front of me, Jesus. He's the son of God and he's the king. Jesus takes it to another level 
by referring to himself, not as the Son of God or the King of Israel, but he refers to himself in that moment as the Son of Man. Son of Man. That's a weird title, right? That's just odd. And when we hear that, it, there's this obscurity to it. And we're like, I don't really know what it means, but you seem to know what you're talking about, Jesus, so we're going to go with that, all right? But to the people of Jesus' day, the religious people of Jesus' day who are rooted in the Scripture, this was just as controversial of a title as Son of God or King of Israel. Because for the Jewish people of that day, when they hear that title, their memory comes alive and they remember the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here's what it says. Daniel has this vision and he sees this imagery and in it, here's how he explains it. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. He approaches God himself and was led into his presence. He was given authority. He was given glory. He was given sovereign power. All the nations and people of every nation worshipped him. That is radical for a person coming out of the Jewish faith to say about themselves that all of the nations will worship me. I've been given authority and glory and sovereign power. And he goes on to say, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is Jesus' own claim about Himself. This is a radical claim. This is a radical claim. And Jesus over and over again through the Gospels refers to himself in this way. More than he claims the other titles. He does claim those titles. And he does embody those titles. But the one that seems to be his favorite is to keep coming back to this one. To make that image come in the minds of the people. Authority, power, glory kingdom forever forever it's powerful so right from the beginning these statements that the earliest disciples are making about Jesus and the statements that Jesus is making about himself surrounded in controversy and so that brings us to the point where we are today in the story and all of the people were divided about Jesus the people were divided about Jesus, what about you? Who is he to you? Who do you believe him to be? Maybe you're divided within yourself today. And that's okay. Keep pressing in. Keep walking with him. And keep wrestling with that question. Who is he? Who is he? All of the people were divided about Jesus. So that brings us to this moment where Jesus invites even more of that with what he stands and says. So he stands up in the middle of all the people at the temple, at this place of worship, and he refers to himself as this living water. And he gives this invitation, come to me, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink, and I will give you living water, and streams of living water will well up within you and flow out of you. Powerful. Beautiful 
invitation that Jesus gives to us. And right on the surface here, already our mind is beginning to make connections because of the metaphor that Jesus uses. Jesus is an absolute genius. Jesus is a genius. When you read through the teachings of Jesus, whether you believe in his claims of divinity, whether you believe that he brings salvation and that you can have salvation through him, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, whether you believe that Jesus actually was raised from the dead or not, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, even if you don't believe it was Jesus who said it, you look at the teachings and you can say, Whoever came up with that was a genius. All right, If there were some followers that made this stuff up about him sometime after his death, but they created all, of his, all this stuff, well, somebody was a genius. All right? I'm not, I'm not saying I believe any of those things. All right? I believe in Jesus fully. I just wanted to get that out in case there's any questions. Some new people are like, oh, it's one of those churches. Okay, just kidding. So, we have to admit though, Jesus is a genius, regardless of what you believe about him. You look at his teachings, brilliant. And the way he so often uses down-to-earth imagery. He takes everyday imagery and he fills it up with so much meaning and so much power and invites us into understanding mystery that we can never get our hearts and minds around by offering us the doorway of a simple image or metaphor that we experience every single day. So he talks about roads and gates. He talks about trees and fruits. He talks about vines and branches. And he talks about water. And he says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Anybody ever been thirsty in your life? Ever in any way? Okay, so we can relate, okay? We can relate, and it's part of the genius of Jesus pulling us into this. And he begins to reveal the truth about himself when he says this. And just right there on the surface, just what we know every day about water, we begin to realize what he's getting at. We say, okay, we use water for washing things in our lives. It's it's something that we use to cleanse. So Jesus is inviting us into this moment of being cleansed. That the things that we have carried, the guilt that we feel, the shame that maybe other people have put on us, Jesus says, I can wash that completely away. Fresh life in me. What an invitation. So powerful that he offers that. Refreshing, right? When When you're thirsty and you're longing for something to quench that thirst, we get that connection as well. The healing properties of water and the way that that's connected connected to good health. We understand that part of the analogy as well. And just the fact that water is essential to life. Water is essential to life. We can go almost 40 days without eating food and survive. You can't go more than three days without water and survive. Your body cannot survive without it the way you were made at the most basic point of who you are. You need water. It is essential to human life. And so we connect with this metaphor and Jesus is saying, I am the life that you need. I am what you need. I am essential to life. 
Last week we wrestled with this question, what do you want? And we spent time wrestling through that question that Jesus asks, what do you want? But there is a more essential question for us beyond what we want. And the essential question is, what do we need? Those are similar questions, but they're different questions. What do you want? It's a great place to start. That's an invitation into that process. But what do you need? What do you really need in order to live, in order to survive at the deepest part of who you are, the most primal need in your life? And Jesus is connecting himself to that and saying, I am essential to life itself. I am the life. Not just what do you want, but what do you need? And so just right there on the surface, we realize how powerful this is, this invitation that Jesus gives. But let's take it one step further than that. All right, I love teaching the Word. I love teaching the Bible. I love teaching about Jesus. I absolutely love doing that. I love studying to try to understand for the process of, of teaching. But what I want more than just to teach the Word, I want for us as a church community to understand how to study the Word together. To know it for ourselves, not just to be handed it from someone else, but to know how to dig into it ourselves and to experience that. And so, from the beginning when we're reading, we can see that surface meaning. But another thing that we need to look at in order to understand Scripture for ourselves when we're engaging with it on our own is to look at the context in which this is happening. The first part of the context is the book of John. So this is a moment within this larger story about the life of Jesus called the Gospel of John. And so we pull back and we say, okay, this is obviously a very important image and metaphor that Jesus is using. Uh, is this a metaphor that gets repeated in the Gospel of John? Is this important to the larger story or is this kind of a one-off moment here with Jesus? And as we, as we pull back, we see this is a theme that runs like a river all the way through this gospel. In the first chapter of John, we get the mention of baptism when we're talking about John the Baptist. In the second chapter of John, we get the first miracle that Jesus ever performs when he turns water into wine at a wedding. In the third chapter, we get Jesus interacting with a religious leader and he says, you must be born again, you must be born of the Spirit and of water. In the fourth chapter, we get Jesus interacting with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman at a well, and he says, I am the living water and I'm offering that to you. In the fifth chapter, we get Jesus healing a man beside a pool. In the sixth chapter, we get Jesus walking on water. In the seventh chapter we have Jesus here in this moment standing up and declaring this offer of living water an obvious theme is building right wave after wave of this is building until we get to this moment and now we see man that there is depth to what Jesus is saying this has been building to this moment but it's not just what happens in the gospel of John we also want to pull back a little bit more. And at the beginning of the passage that we read, it says that this took place on the last and greatest day of the feast. 
All right, so we could just start there, but we have no clue what that means. Like, what feast? What are we talking about? What, what does it mean, the last and greatest day? What is the feast? If we pull back a little bit more in this chapter, we see that Jesus is at an event called the Feast of Tabernacles. This is an annual event for the Jewish people where it's required that if you live within a certain radius of Jerusalem, as a Jewish person, you're required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. It's one of three feasts through the year that you have to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And all of them are about remembering key moments in the history of Israel where God broke in and brought salvation to the people. And that's what the people are there for. This is a crowded moment where people have crowded into Jerusalem for this special feast of the tabernacles. But what moment in Israel's history is this remembering? Does anybody know what moment from Israel's history this commemorates? Any guesses? All right. It is the moment where the people have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay? For 40 years, the people of Israel lived in tents, lived in these tabernacles, lived in these temporary dwellings in the wilderness, in the desert. Why? Because after hundreds of years of being enslaved by the Egyptian empire, God heard the cries of his people. He raised up Moses as a liberator and he broke the yoke of slavery on their lives and he brought them out of Egypt and into freedom. Before they arrived in the promised land that God was preparing for them, they spent this 40-year window of wandering in the desert. But they remembered every year the way God was with them during that time. Even while they lived in these temporary dwellings of tent, tents, nomadic people dwelling in the wilderness in the desert. And they remembered the way God provided for them over and over and over again. And so they would come to Jerusalem once a year. They would spend seven days in Jerusalem. And as a way of not just remembering mentally, but remembering with their whole selves, re-embodying that experience and reenacting that experience, when the people came into Jerusalem... God commanded them that year after year come to Jerusalem and build a tent. Build a tabernacle like your ancestors dwelled in in the desert. And remember the way I was with you through that experience. So the people would come in and for seven days they would li live in these tents. They would live in these tabernacles. That's what's happening while Jesus is, do, is sharing this message when Jesus stands up to speak and say this. Now, a key moment that they're going to remember throughout that ceremony and throughout that festival is not just that God was with them, but the way God provided for them. And in the desert, one of the things that you desperately need is you need God to come through and to provide a source of water. 
And so that over and over again, as they're dwelling in these tabernacles and in these tents, parents would tell the stories to their children. Friends would share this story with each other. And they would say, do you remember how God provided for us in Exodus chapter 17 when we were in the desert and we were desperate and we were thirsty and we didn't think we were going to make it out alive? And God raised up Moses and said, Moses, take your staff and strike this rock and miraculously out of the rock, I'm going to provide water for the people. And they would tell that story over and over again while they were there in the tents and in the tabernacles. Remember when Moses struck the rock and God provided the water? We were thirsty. We were desperate. We weren't going to make it. And God came through in a miraculous way. We'll never forget it. We'll never forget it. We're going to keep telling it to generation after generation after generation. And it's in the middle of that, with that image in their minds that Jesus stands up and he says, Is your life a desert? Are you wandering? Do you feel like you have lost direction? Are you in a time of desperation in your life? I am the water that you need. I am what you need the most. I am the rock out of which the water flows to provide for the people. I am what you need the most. I am your life. As a part of that experience, they would stand up and they would read these selected scriptures from the prophets. They would read from the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 47 where he has this vision and he sees this river that flows out of the temple in Jerusalem and out to the world. And the further it gets away from the temple, the wider the river gets and the deeper the river gets until it works its way all the way to the Dead Sea, the lowest possible point and what was dead is now teeming with life when the river that Ezekiel sees hits the Dead Sea suddenly the Dead Sea becomes alive and these barren lands are suddenly filled with trees and vegetation and it sprouts to life because of the presence of the river they would read that scripture they would read the prophecy from Zechariah in chapter 14 that says a river will flow from Jerusalem and will go to the Dead Sea. Again, echoing that. And it says that at the end of all things, at the restoration of all things, even God's enemies will join Him on this holy mountain and they will be invited in to share in the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. So when they got together, they remembered that as well. And every day, over and over, they would read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 12, verse 3, which says, With joy let us draw from the wells of salvation. And they would sing this to each other, and they would say this out loud, and they would celebrate with each other, and they would shout for joy when they said it. And it's in the middle of that that Jesus stands up and says, Is anyone here thirsty? Don't just talk about what happened back then. It's here now. Is anyone thirsty? Come to me and experience what you need. I'm here now. The rock from the wilderness is standing in front of you. 
and I'm ready to pour myself out for you. Come and experience what you need the most. There was a ritual that they would do every day where the priests would march from the temple down to this pool of Siloam is what it was called and they would carry with them these golden pitchers and they would draw water from the pool and they would march back up all the while people are singing these psalms about the salvation of God and this procession of priests is marching back up to the temple they would come to the altar in the temple they would march around the altar and they would pour out the water and the people would celebrate the way God saved them in the desert and on the last and greatest day of the feast the priest would do that, and when they got to the altar, they would march around it seven times to represent the fulfillment of this promise, the fullness of this promise, and pour out the water, and the people would celebrate and say, with joy, let us draw from the wells of salvation. And in the middle of that, Jesus stands up and says, I'm here. I'm what you need. I'm what you've been longing for. Is anyone thirsty? Come to me and drink. Come to me. And John tells us that the promise is about Jesus and the promise is about the Holy Spirit because the reality of their story is not just that the people lived in tents in the desert and in the wilderness, but God lived in a tent with them as well. And God commanded Moses and the people to build for him a tabernacle and a tent. And he said, I'm going to make my dwelling place among my people. And that tabernacle and that tent is going to house the presence of God himself. And my very presence will live with you in that tabernacle, in that tent. I'm going to be sleeping in a tent too. And so in this moment, when the people are there in their tabernacles, when the people are camping out for the week in their tents, what Jesus is communicating to us is that you are a mobile tabernacle. You are going to become the very dwelling place of the presence of God himself. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on the believers. And we will become the mobile, moving tabernacles of God in the world and everywhere you go his presence lives within you Jesus says come to me anyone who is thirsty and drink and these streams of living water will well up inside of you and will flow out of you and as the people's memory is heightened as their celebration is at its peak Jesus stands up and gives this promise. And he's saying the same thing to every one of you today. Take it all the way back. You might not have any connection at all to any of that other history, but take it all the way back to where we started with this. And every single one of us, by virtue of being a human, understands what Jesus is saying here and gets the straight cut through point that he is saying I am what you need and thus the people were divided because of Jesus what about you maybe you're divided in yourself 
like we said at the beginning. But maybe as we've been walking through this story, there's this sense of desperation that you're beginning to recognize. It's there, it's been there, it's been this ache, it's been this longing, but now you're starting to recognize it. You're coming awake to the reality of it. And something within you is saying, maybe Jesus is the thing that I need the most. Jesus has no interest in numbing your thirst. Jesus actually wants you to be dissatisfied. That seems a little off message for Jesus, right? He's like, he's the guy who says, give a cup of cold water in my name. He's the guy who multiplies bread and, and all of that, right? But Jesus actually wants you to be dissatisfied. Until you find your satisfaction in him. Because he knows nothing else is going to do it. Nothing else is going to do it. He's not going to numb your thirst, but instead he's going to draw it and he's going to direct it to himself until we come to the point of realizing that he is the only thing that can satisfy us. That he is the craving that we need the most. At the deepest part of who we are, he's the one that fills The legendary squirrels of the UNC campus. All right. Awesome. He is the one that fills us to the point of overflowing. He is the one that's going to create a perpetual desire in us to draw from those deep wells of salvation until we know it in the depths of who we are. Jesus actually wants you to be dissatisfied with the things that are too small to fill out your soul, with the things that are too low to reach true depth. Because in the end, He's inviting you to know and He's inviting you to experience that the oldest and most persisting longing of your soul will only come to rest in Him. Jesus stands up at the peak of it all, in the middle of it all. And he says, come to me, anyone who is thirsty, and you will find the fulfillment that you're longing for. Justin's going to come and lead us in a time of communion. For some of you, this might be a time where you seal what we're talking about. And by coming forward and sharing in communion, you're saying, Jesus, I am hungry and I am thirsty and I know that you are the only one that will satisfy and I am putting my full trust in you. For others, you might come forward and say, Jesus, like those people, I'm still divided within myself. But I'm taking another step towards you because I think you might be the answer. I'm not sure yet. But I think you might be the answer. For others, maybe you have found that fulfillment. And today, in sharing in communion, is a reminder of that. Say, Jesus, my full trust is in you. My surrender is to you. You are the one that satisfies. And I have to admit, maybe I'm in a place right now where I'm feeling desperate. 
I might be in a place where I feel like I'm in the desert wandering. But even if I don't feel it, I'm still putting my trust in you. And I believe what you said. And so I'm going to come to you. And I want to experience that fulfillment that you're offering to me. Amen.